0: So let's start by generating our motivation for being here this evening. And some years ago, when we studied uh, Nagarjuna's precious garland of advice to a king, um, that was the first time I heard teachings on the paths and grounds that the bodhisattvas travel to attain full awakening. And that was the first time I heard that it is only on the eighth. Bodhisattva ground that you are completely free from afflictions, their seeds, and polluted karma. And from the time of entering the Bodhisattva path, which happens when you have spontaneous bodhicitta, um, it takes two countless great eons to get to the eighth ground. And so I realized in this kind of naive way, wow, I'm going to be working on the afflictions for a very long time. (laughs) Because the last I checked, I'm a completely ordinary sentient being that hasn't entered any kind of path. I don't have spontaneous bodhicitta, nor the wisdom directly realizing emptiness, not even the mind that day and night unceasingly aspires for liberation. And just recognizing this was not discouraging. Um, In fact, I think it helps my mind to be more realistic about where I am on the path. And to be vigilant. Yeah, when arrogance arises thinking, oh, I know this affliction, I have it under control. It's like, well, check up, you know, you think you're anywhere close to the eighth ground, I really don't think so. So, you know, that prevents us from getting blindsided as well. And thinking in this way also helps me to have more compassion for myself, knowing that for sure the afflictions are going to arise out of habit. I'm going to get overwhelmed. And so it serves me well to study and learn the antidotes and to become very familiar with them. And to know that all other beings around me are in the same boat. From the cats who can't help but chase after chipmunks to those of us who are habituated to attachment, anger, and it arises once we are triggered and we just follow that old habit. So today let's cultivate a spirit of open-heartedness and transparency as we review how to work with the afflictions. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to pretend that we don't have faults because we know we're in the same boat. What we do have to do is to keep practicing the Dharma because that's what's going to truly help us to get out of this situation. And by working with our own afflictions, And overcoming them, we create the causes to someday be able to help others to do the same, to teach them, to guide them, so that they too may remove the afflictions from their mind streams and become fully awakened as well. So very good evening to everyone. Um, Venerable Chodron is still on the road in Sydney. So we're continuing our review of the book that she's written together with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, Approaching the Buddhist Path, the first volume of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. And we are right in the middle of a review of Chapter 3, which is on the mind and emotions. And right now we're on a section called Working with Afflictions. So everybody sitting in this room has studied and practiced the Dharma for some time. I'm guessing that all of you have some experience and observation of the afflictions and have attempted to work with them to varying degrees of success, I'm guessing. Um, So I'd like today's session to be really discussion-based. It's going to be very interactive and practical. Yeah, because it's kind of like this is the stuff we know, and then you just kind of forget it when you're in the heat of the moment. <laughs> so let's help each other to review and remember what to do when when we're triggered or overwhelmed. Um, so just to, I'll do a quick recap of where we are in the book, and more importantly, to revisit the definition of afflictions. Yeah, because you know just to make sure we're on the same page and we're discussing the same thing. So I think already people have reviewed this definition before. But it's, um, I think there's a very nice write-up on page 45 of the book, if you're looking at the hard copy. And I'm just going to read it out. So His Holiness says, The Sanskrit word klesha is a commonly used word in Buddhist texts that refers to mental factors that afflict the mind and do not allow it to abide peacefully. Yep, so that's what the key um, characteristic of an affliction. Yeah, it's a mental state that's causing disturbance in the mind. Whatever tranquility is, it is gone. Um, So these disturbing emotions and views enslave the mind, confining it to a narrow perspective and motivate actions that hinder the happiness of both ourselves and others. So that's the second key characteristic, that the afflictions get in the way of our happiness and also sometimes cause us to hinder the happiness of others. And as such, kleshas are obscurations on the path to liberation, and Buddhist texts speak of their disadvantages and the antidotes to them. And as Venerable Seppel reminded us last week, there is no English equivalent to the word klesha that encompasses mental factors as diverse as emotions, attitudes, philosophical views, and innate, unquestioned assumptions about ourselves and the world. So for the sake of simplicity in this whole series of books, uh, Venerable Children and His Holiness have translated klesha as afflictions, and sometimes expanded and say disturbing emotions and wrong views. So some afflictions, such as the view of a personal identity, are called views in English, while others, for example, anger and jealousy, are called emotions. Mental states, such as not believing that awakening is possible, are called views. So here we're just, you know, so when we say afflictions, that shorthand for this whole range of everything from conceptions that are totally distorted, that might harm ourselves and others, to what we will call emotions, especially in our modern psychological understanding, like anger, jealousy, and so on. Um, and then in this chapter, you know, after setting up this definition, His Holiness goes on to look at constructive and destructive emotions. And I think Vener- for those of you who were here yesterday, Venerable Sangye Kadro kind of touched on this, yeah, that he's taking kind of a non-traditional view of the disturbing emotions these days. And he does that in this section where he looks at attachment, fear, anger, and dis- disillusionment from both perspectives. You know, the how might at- attachment, fear, and anger, and dis- disillusionment have a constructive effect. I mean, the traditional Buddhist presentation would not cover that, right? But just saying, hey, from a modern psychological perspective, are there times where these emotions could help us in our spiritual practice? And then, of course, he looks at them from the destructive aspect as well. So that section has been reviewed, I think, months ago by Venerable Lamsel. Yeah. And then last week, Venerable Seppel went on to look at emotions and survival. And there, His Holiness puts forward this theory that disturbing emotions are based on exaggeration and, pro- and projection, and as a result, they are detrimental for our survival as individuals and also as a species. Yeah, so it's not that anger helps us to survive, but he's putting forward the idea that you know, if you have anger, you're exaggerating what's going on, and you may freeze or you may um, overreact, and that may actually jeopardize your safety. Yeah. So it's a theory, yeah, that he's putting forward for us to check out. And the theory is that if we cultivate constructive emotions, then we have long-term happiness. Yeah. So that's the, you know, the logic that's running through this chapter, right? That, that's why we come to this section on working with afflictions. Now yeah, because if afflictions are not helpful for our individual survival or even our survival as a species, then we want to find a way to remove them. Yeah. So this whole chapter is about why the afflictions can be removed, and how to do that. So um, as part of a review, I thought we'd have, begin with some discussion. So I'd like you to settle back into a meditation position, and I'll pose two questions for you to think about uh, before we do a bit of uh, pair work. So just take a moment to come back to your breath. And go back to the time when you had not yet met the Dharma. What was your perception and understanding of what we now call the afflictions? If you like, you can focus on a specific affliction when you do this reflection. And now that you've studied the Dharma and practiced it for a while, how has your perception and understanding of the afflictions changed? So for those of us who are in this room, we'll take a bit of time to pair up and just share from both sides three or four minutes before we come back as a circle. Um, and if you're online or watching the teachings alone at home, you can spend this time journaling about these two questions. So I'll repeat them. Um, before you've met the Dharma, what was your perception and understanding of what we call the afflictions? And if you like, you can focus on just one affliction. And now that you've met the Dharma or studied and practiced for some time, how has your perception and understanding changed? Um, I know we are in odd numbers, so there'll be one group of three. So let's just spend about 10 minutes doing this. Okay, so we have microphones in the room and we'll pass them around. So what came up for people
1: I think the thing that was most obvious for me is that um, before I met the Dharma, I thought that pride was the antidote to low self-esteem. mm Not right, the Dharma. It's not so, <laughs> it's not so um, misconstrued. I can see that self-esteem definitely comes from other places, and, and pride really just is a... a um, It's like the backdrop to a really bad play or something like that.
0: (laughs) Okay, so like wrong ideas about how to work with um, negative states of mind, right? Just not knowing how they come about. So you think, okay, let's kind of push to the opposite, inflating myself. But why doesn't it make the low self-esteem go away? Yeah, for sure. That's definitely one misunderstanding. Other thoughts that came up?
2: Before I met the dharma, I thought that indulging in my lust was the source of all pleasure. Mm-hmm. And, and not just you know, the physical action of you know, sex or something, but the whole process was pleasurable. Um, you know, and, and also, it was totally natural, normal. As long as I'm doing it in socially acceptable ways, then it's fine. There's no problem.
0: And then, <laughs> did anything change? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so after I met the Dharma, um, I'm, I'm seeing more subtly how harmful it is in, during the whole process, how unsatisfactory the whole thing is, um, and results in a lot of pain and suffering mentally um, for yourself and for the other person, um, and Tanya and I were just talking about the whole society is st- structured, you know, in a way that promotes this. Um, but just seeing how it's just a source of misery.
0: Yeah. Did that come up in other pairs? Just how normal the afflictions seem, or how we live in a world that seems to encourage them. Yeah. It's funny, I was telling someone the other day when I decided to move to a monastery, this friend I hadn't heard from for a long time suddenly called me up and was like, we have to go to lunch. I'm like, okay. So I go to lunch and she's like, I can't believe you're going to walk away from competition in your life.
3: Huh? She said,
0: <laughs> she was like deeply concerned for me as a human being. No, she's like, how are you going to survive? <laughs> she's like, without competition, how will you grow? I'm like, I think I'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny because she had just lost her job during the Asian financial crisis after Bear Stearns collapse, you know. So here's this person telling me I should compete to survive. So that was just curious, but I was touched by her sincerity. <laughs> but yeah, we think without attachment or competition, we're going to die or lose out in some way, yeah.
4: So in many instances, people confuse strength with anger so the anger you get the stronger you know people think you are or you try to project strength by getting really really angry and um becomes normal if you are not getting angry at things and uh, you're giving others the impression that you're weak or people associate that with being weak and um like you know we can walk all over that person because they just are not exhibiting any anger or um yeah, and the louder you get, uh, <laughs> the more you think you're going to get your way. So.
0: Yeah, just the whole topsy-turvy view we have of the world before we've met the Dharma. But that reminds me too of how we associate people with their behavior, right? Like, okay, this loud, angry person is therefore powerful in some way. Did that come up for other people? Like, w- whether you associate the afflictions with a person or yourself I mean, before you met the Dharma, did you think they were just union oneness?
5: I was thinking about how um, growing up in a family where there was a lot of anger and chaos, that that was the norm, and so I emulated that. But then, mm, even before I met the Dharma, there was, uh, I think I would say, a, a yearning for some meaning and some peace and whatever and so it's kind of like bouncing off of that and somehow knowing that there was something different that one could do but I didn't know what it was Mm. Um, and where I did look it didn't uh, bring any relief or answers you know Um, it took a while to find the dharma to then see where the answers lay Mm. for
6: me
7: and for me, I had a very, very different experience of anger, is that the anger was usually followed by some form of violence. So instead of modeling it, I went to the other side of the universe and became so terrified of any, particular my own anger, thinking that if I dare to get angry, I'm going to destroy somebody, I'm going to harm somebody, I'm going to abuse somebody. And so to be able to grow out of that, to see that anger is not the person and that, that the violent response is... a is a separate deal than the affliction itself. And even though it didn't make me say, oh, now I can be an angry person because I don't get violent, it, it helped me not to be afraid when people got angry with me. And then I got to be less afraid about my own anger, and then I could deal with it you know, slowly.
0: Wow. So, I mean, it's like there's so many layers, right? So there's this thing we call an affliction or a disturbing emotion, and then there's what society says about it whether it's encouraged or not, like, OK, this is powerful, this is harmful. And then there's the stuff we, our family says about it, right? Mm-hmm. Anger is OK, or anger is bad. And then there's stuff that we then tell ourselves about the afflictions, right? Like same, I was definitely, ter- for a long time, I was like, I'm not an angry person. I don't have anger. <laughs> And I was terrified, terrified when I finally looked inward When And I was like, oh, I'm so angry. Because I thought, I'm bad. I'm so bad for being angry. I'm so shameful. There was one whole retreat where I think, um, this is so embarrassing, but that was definitely one of those winter retreats where you're like, I have so much anger. I have a serious problem. I was in the library reading three books about anger at the same time. I <laughs> think like, where is the answer? And I cried for one hour at some point in there. You know. I was reading Titnahan's Han's uh, anger book, working with anger, and then the compassion book with Dr. Russell Gold and Venerable Children. <laughs> so yeah, don't don't go there. There are other there are better ways to deal with anger earlier. <laughs> but yeah, just getting in touch with that fear of the affliction. Yeah.
8: I'm really glad that you have- Bringing up this thing of of uh, thinking there's unity between our afflictions and ourselves, and so that how can I separate myself from this, and and then the relief of knowing that these are all adventitious uh, and they can go away, and they're not deep deep rooted. They're just habits of mind. They're really habits of mind, and there are antidotes, and and it's and they diminish. Based on your diligence in recognizing and applying the antidotes, it's kind of like almost mechanical. <laughs> it's like if, if, I reckon, you know, if I have enough introspective awareness to recognize which affliction it is, and I know what the antidote is, and I apply it, then it goes away, you know, and it diminishes in my life going on the long term. It's kind of amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, Venerable Jampa. I wanna add people online too, if they have thoughts, can type them in and we can we're happy to hear from you.
9: Yeah. Um, I was also um discussing that um the habit of running away from the afflictions was mm-hmm. very big and modeled to me too, in form of you know, distracting yourself or indeed really running away. And even when you come here to the Abbey and you're starting to work and look and people reflect towards you also this urge of no, you know, mm-hmm. like you kind of also indicated, oh, so terrible, and you want to run away, and we had this topic many times during EML. Um and then I, I also remember that I practiced in the very beginning uh, of my Buddhist approach, a meditation form where this has been more subdued. You subdue, you calm your mind so strongly that you're kind of in a peaceful state, and and to anger, you don't feel so much. And but then something was missing um, because there was still the anger, and there was no tool. The meditation alone, calming the mind, wasn't helpful. So then I was thinking about the Buddha's abroad that you know the middle way. He was also um, approaching asceticism, mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And but that wasn't the solution, you know, just um, reframing from food or reframing from. I don't know what it is, what um or running away from an angry person or you know, constantly and um so but to find the middle way to yeah, what we do in our tradition to identify the afflictions and to learn the antidotes and to practice them slowly, slowly, step by step.
1: Mm-hmm. I think while we're on the point of running away from afflictions, I, this is something I also did a lot and um when I was younger, it would like it was I would run away from the situation itself because I thought somewhere in the situation was the affliction, and that's mm. the reason I was angry. So I would relocate myself, and you know that's even what my parents taught me to do. Like when you're upset, you leave the room and go do something else. Um, but then as I got to high school and into college, it was like, well, if I can't run away from the situation <laughs> physically, why don't I just get like on, intoxicated in some way mm. and you leave the situation mentally? It's like it's the same behavior of trying to um, leave the situation in order to solve the, the, the antidote, sorry, as an antidote, with, but leaving the situation is kind of impossible because you're carrying these afflictions with you.
0: Right, you're like the dog with the fleas. <laughs> you move to a different courtyard and you're still itchy. <laughs> um, so
4: Tracy shares that before um, I thought afflictions just arose out of nowhere. Or that they're a product of particular life experiences, not something I could control. I didn't see them as harmful, more as indicators that something was right or wrong in my world. Now, I see that afflictions are harmful to myself and others. They come from my own untamed mind, not from anything external. They need to be tamed so that I can see clearly and act with wisdom. <coughs> and then a, a friend from Singapore um, shares that, before I met the Dharma, I thought that it was the one sure way you in know, all um, to all my problems, in other words, I didn't need to put in any effort. <laughs> uh, now I see that practicing the Dharma means a lot of hard work and self control and lower our expectations. Um, someone else shares that after they met the Dharma, I learned the, the afflictions were a product of an inherently existent self. And because that self is relative, then afflictions loosened up in some way. Mm. And then someone else shares that before meeting the Dharma, I admired anger and sarcasm very much and tried to emulate it. I was very relieved when I found out that after meeting the Dharma, that um, I was not an angry person, that I was simply a person who got angry sometimes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and what Venerable Jambo was sharing too reminded me of there's this beautiful video um, that's part of the Discovering Buddhism series, where Lama Yeshe talks about what meditation is all about. Has anyone seen that? Right, where he takes a glass of water, I think, and he says, you know, this is what your mind is usually like. And he shakes the glass, and it's like, ah. and he said, when you meditate, and you put the glass down, that's what you're doing with your mind. Yeah, it just settles. And then after it settles, then you get to see that there's all kinds of gunk in the water, right? But then you learn methods to get it out. Yeah, we don't stay stuck at. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who has right where the mind settles and you're like, oh, it's so dirty. (laughs) <laughs> oh, worst! Pour it away. Cannot pour it out. Right, and then you get stuck, and like this is a bad cup. This is such a you know, ugly water. Worse, worse. Uh, don't want to look at it. And then finally, you read the teachings, and it's like you know you can purify the water. It's like oh really? <laughs> and then you try, and it's like oh, it's getting a bit clearer. Yeah, and then slowly, slowly, you find that it's that the dirt is not in the nature of the water. I think it's very important not to get stuck at that point where I think often when we go into retreat or we start our practice, the mind gets quiet and you're like, I'm a bad person or I'm so distracted. Like a lot of, I'm sure all of us who facilitate SAFE, a lot of the newer students write in saying, my mind is so noisy. I'm such a distracted, mindless person. I'll never make it. It's like, (laughs) yeah, you're just seeing the dirt for the first time. And that's actually something to rejoice in because now you can get it out. Since we know the methods. Yeah. So, I wanted to do this little discussion because um, in this section on working with the afflictions, His Holiness begins with this little section on the nature of the afflictions. It's basically what Tanya has kindly summarized. I was like, did she read this book or write it? Or, <laughs> you know, in a very compact way. Where, first of all, he lays out what the afflictions are, are what is their nature, and why they can be removed. Yeah, because we have to believe that before we'll even start. If we're stuck at that place of like I am an angry hopeless person, then why bother? Yeah? Or if you believe oh it's genetically predetermined and I'm never going to change, my whole family's like this and I will henceforth forever be like this, my children will be like this. You know, then you're never going to try, right? So all of us had talked about how all these wrong views are actually acquired very often by wrong ideas in society, things that were taught. So, you know, we can unlearn this or we can try out other theories. Yeah. So I put on the board here um, what's basically a summary of that first um, section of this section in the chapter, right, which basically you can phrase in terms of four um, syllogisms yeah. for folks who have been studying syllogisms on Thursdays, yeah, where His Holiness basically says, afflictions can be eliminated yeah, Why? Because they are not an intrinsic part of the mind. Yeah, they haven't penetrated its clear and cognizant nature. Right? So right, first of all, we have to prove to ourselves, or we have to believe afflictions are not an intrinsic part of the mind. Right? That takes a while, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, we're all, right, We see the anger and we're like, oh, it's never going away, I'm perpetually angry. But like that person online said, you pause and you realize... There are moments in the day when you're not angry. So you can't possibly be 24-7 an eternally angry person. Yeah, so you've got to start challenging those views that you're carrying. And then, if the afflictions are not an intrinsic part of the mind, they're not part of its clear and cognizant nature, then it follows that they necessarily can be eliminated. Hmm. Right, so that's another thing for us to try out, right? You try out the antidotes and you're like, does it work? Does it actually reduce my anger? Huh, seems like it does. So, yeah, they can't be in the nature of the mind. something, there are causes that affect it. Wow. And then the next idea he puts forward is that afflictions are fragile and they can't stand up to powerful states of mind that understand reality. Why? Because they are rooted in ignorance and other distorted conceptions. So this is another hard one, I think. Yeah, that afflictions are rooted in ignorance and other distorted conceptions. And do we believe that? <laughs> and like we were just discussing, you know, often society tells us no. You know, the afflictions are perfectly natural. They are the logical way to think. Yeah, they're what's ha- that's what's gonna help you get ahead. You know, if you step on the other guy. <laughs> Yeah, who's fighting for the job. I mean, why would you give him the space? Like, forget it, right? Me first, yeah? And so it takes a while for us to see, hey, yeah, like Stephen said, hmm, maybe this is not pleasurable. Maybe doing this is harming other people. Maybe it's harming myself. Maybe it's not even based on a realistic view of what brings happiness, right? Like how much pleasure can we get out of one object? I mean, once you eat the 10th chocolate chip cookie, you must experience some suffering of change, right? It's like, "Hmm, it it really cannot be in that cookie. You can experiment, please go ahead. (laughs) Don't blame me. It's ignorance and distorted conception, right? And then the same thing, right? When we realize, hmm, if it's not based on a realistic perspective, then maybe there are some other states of mind that can actually completely remove them. Yeah. So, I think that too, like Venerable Kunga was talking about today, that takes some time to get to the faith of conviction <laughs> around this, right? That, hmm, I, I am capable of other perspectives. There are other ways of thinking that will actually make the affliction completely go away. Yeah. I think that's, a, I don't know, that was definitely a challenge for me when I first met the Dharma, right? Where Venerable says, with thought transformation, your whole perspective shifts such that the affliction is not even relevant. I'm like, what? Really? Right? Because I mean, in the early days of thought transformation, it just feels like I'm suppressing it or I'm like forcing myself to think they are bodhisattva (laughs) but still I'm like (laughs) angry, angry, angry. Right. But I think as we try out different methods and you try and see things from a bigger perspective, it's like, yeah, maybe the anger actually is not relevant to this situation. Like, wow, people are suffering. They created the cause. They're going to suffer further. Why should I get mad? Yeah. So we'll talk more about that later, these shifts of mind that actually help the afflictions just fall away. And then we come to the antidotes, as some of you were mentioning as well, yeah? where before we met the Dharma, it was like, are there other options? Are other ways of thinking actually possible? Well, apparently, yes. So His Holiness here says, constructive states of mind can be developed limitlessly, because their basis is the innate, subtle mind of clear light that continues eternally without interruption. Yeah. This, I have to say, is a, is a tough one for me. I was talking to Venerable Sepple about it, because it seems so abstract, right? Like, what is this innate, subtle mind of clear light? Yeah, but I think, basically, if we go back to the end of chapter 2, he's just talking about the nature of the mind to know its objects and engage in a, you know, it's the emptiness of the mind as well that it's able to engage objects, it's changing moment by moment. And so if you create the causes, that love will continue to grow. Yeah. It comes to the next point too, yeah. where there's nothing that can stop the realistic beneficial states of mind. They're not based on ignorance. They're not based on distorted logic. Right? So the mind can continue to nourish them. As long as we keep creating those causes and conditions, they will extend. Anything you want to add, Venerable Seppel? They're not necessarily based on- Oh, right, that's true, yeah, yeah. They can still be based on ignorance, yeah. But when we get to the stage where ignorance is completely removed, yeah, that love is limitless, right? Because we have a genuine understanding of what we are, what other sentient beings are, and the afflictions are no longer in the way. So still an article of uh, faith, not convictional faith, but aspiring, perhaps, for me. Um, but number four definitely uh, resonates with me, which is that these constructive states of mind can be developed limitlessly because they are based on accurate perception and no counteracting force exists that can eliminate them forever. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about yeah, what I've learned in the Dharma, if I know that it's a realistic perspective, right, then the state of mind that's based on that uh, cannot be challenged or changed um, I mean, you know, th- destroyed. Yeah. But sometimes I think coming to the accurate perception, it's so like the total opposite of what we've grown up with or what we've been taught. Um, it comes as a shock, right? Something as simple as the nature of the body is impermanent or foul. <laughs> That's accurate, yeah? But for some reason, profoundly shocking. <laughs> Those of you who are here, I'll never forget the four establishments of mindfulness retreat where I think for three months, we never got past the foulness of the body. (laughs) Every discussion group was people like, really? It's like, come on, you blow your nose. Like, look, (laughs) you "You poop. Hey, (laughs) this is not like some pleasant, amazing, pleasurable, joyful, sweet-smelling thing, right? There was one person in the group who was like, but my wife's hair. You know, and you're like, if you saw the hair in your food, you're like, ew, send it back to the kitchen. Yeah. So Nagarjuna points this out, you know, that these very obvious, basic, accurate perceptions um, are shocking to us because of the distortion that our mind has been habituated to. But once we move the mind in that direction, then we, we are happier, isn't it? We stop expecting unrealistic things from our own and others' bodies. When it breaks down, it's like, okay, (laughs) it's in the nature of the body to do this. All right, don't have to get mad. Don't have
4: to...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Until you can't pull it back further. It's like, it's going to sag. Okay, move on. (laughs) I can do other things with my life. I am not this body. Yeah, so a very joyful, hopeful perspective. And it helps us to focus our energy on what actually matters. Hooray! <laughs> so now we'll go on to the next section of this um, chapter, which is where His Holiness then lays out you know, something like, I found 16 points here on um, ways to work with the afflictions. Yeah, but instead of me listing them, I thought we'd discuss them again, because all of us have worked with afflictions, clearly. So let's just take a moment again to reflect on a question, and then we'll do a quick go-around involving everybody. <laughs> So you better think of something to say. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure between us, we'll come up with all 16 points. (laughs) So let's take a moment to settle in. Again, connecting with our breath. So now bring to mind what you might consider your strongest affliction. What has your journey been like working with this affliction? What practices have helped you and what have not? So let's just pass the microphone around and people just share what Antidote has worked well for you, whether or not in relation to a specific affliction, and I'll put them down on the board, perhaps. Yeah, I just want to see if we'll, we'll get to all of these different points and we'll see what else we don't hit.
4: Recognizing the disadvantages of the afflictions has really helped seeing, particularly thinking of anger and attachment, just seeing how unhappy they make myself and they make, my, they make others and the stupid things I do under
0: their influence. Getting clear about the effects of our afflictions. Yeah, for sure. Did they mention that? Not so much, actually. But yeah, for sure. I think in this list, um, we have the corollary, which is, which Venable Seppel brought up yesterday, right? When we recognize the disadvantages of an affliction, it also helps us to recognize the benefits of the antidotes, right? So yeah, spending lots of time thinking about this, meditating on it. I think you all of us also remember the, there was a Vajrasava retreat where Venerable got everyone in the room to share what they would have been doing on New Year's Day, which immediately made everyone very relieved that they were not out getting drunk. Because it was, it was very sobering. Yeah, Stephen was there. I mean, no pun intended. But... You know, people sharing all the unfortunate things that happen on New Year's, like starting your New Year with your car in an accident and not being able to go to work the next day because you got drunk and crashed the car. It's like, yeah, everyone was like, hmm, I'm glad I'm here for New Year's. Right, and then thinking about the benefits of doing the opposite, yeah, for sure, that, and repeatedly doing that, that helps. I
10: think the most <laughs> helpful practice for me is just simply patience. Mm-hmm. And so when I recognize an affliction arising, creating the temporal space to not respond, so that as it arises, there's a pause in that recognition so that something isn't said, something isn't done, it's not acted upon, and so by not activating it, I then allow myself to consciously choose how to respond.
11: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, you yeah, have patience, but also, not patience in the sense of sitting and just waiting, but it sounds like a very active process, right? Yeah. Recognition, and of course we know what are the mental factors that help us with this process? Introspective yeah. awareness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you know, as we have more mindfulness and introspective awareness,
8: um For me, uh, it was working on the working on the small bits first, so like with anger, recognizing that um if I still had the mental ability to think when it's happening, for example, to not reflectively get angry when I stub my toe, you know, and not starting with you know trying to corral it when I've already become furious but the small little guys and so as my as I dealt with the small ones then I didn't have like this build-up of frustration and anger that when something big happened that I would just go blah you know it's like so so something about just working with the small ones and also when my mind was not totally involved in the affliction but having some mental state that was able to do what Jay just said Mm -hmm. but I had to start small Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that's definitely in this list yep learn to observe and detect destructive emotions when they are small right and then choose how we want to respond yeah for sure like, yeah, for beginners, you know, don't start with the most traumatic incident in your life when you sit and meditate. Right? Start start with the stubbing your toe or something your mind can handle.
7: Yeah. Um, my body's going to tell me mm-hmm. when something's not right. So it's usually going to be uh, my heartbeat starts to increase. There's a restlessness in the body, an agitation in the body. So, yeah, body sensations are a big um, yellow flag for me that something's starting to happen. For me, the um,
5: affliction that is hardest and what I work with a lot is attachment. And so um, one of the antidotes that I use is um, when I notice that my mind starts anticipating something um, and I get kind of some, I call it zingy energy, it's like... You know, I'm waiting for it. I'm ready. And then my mind starts going over it again and again, you know, anticipating that then I, if I at that point start looking for what I'm exaggerating, then that helps me get some distance and turn that whole record off. And, um, you know, I may still, uh, uh, partake in whatever it is, but it's a different experience. Um, And so the thing that doesn't work is if I shut myself off of anything pleasurable because I'm attached to it, that does not work at all. So it's more about allowing myself to enjoy it and then waving bye-bye to it. It's gone now, (laughs) and being okay with that.
1: um, Anger is definitely the most obvious one um, i think when i first came to the abbey long uh, venerable i asked me if anger was a problem for me i was like no 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 a no, 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 no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but more and more you see that um, i see that my mind is always looking for someone to be frustrated with or someone mm-hmm. to be annoyed by or these little low level angers mm-hmm. and then you know eventually that kind of boils over and turns into like oh well now i'm actually upset with the way that's happening or this thing, and it's always looking to blame something for the anger. Um, something that doesn't help is saying, "Oh, if, if I just if I if I tell everyone exactly what I'm angry about, then I won't be angry anymore." <laughs> <laughs> I've done that so many times, and you know, I guess now I finally see it doesn't work. <laughs> like, still angry right afterwards, but now maybe I have a little troop, a little companion of people who are also angry, and now it's okay that I'm angry because they're angry too. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Validating myself based on other people experiencing anger is not helpful. Um, uh, and then, what it does help, and the the thing that Venerable Seppel um, we'll brought this morning for asking or for developing integrity, which is asking yourself how you want to be, uh, that's something that Venerable Trojan asked us to do or asked me to do earlier in the in meeting her and. You know, I've seen so many old people who are quite angry, and I really don't want to be an angry old person. (laughs) Like, well, none of you. (laughs) They're
10: they're
11: angry
8: young people.
1: The one of them, (laughs) but. Yeah, really thinking, like, you know, the effect of practicing this anger over and over and over again is that when I'm old and I have less control over um, my my narratives and my habits, like,
2: that's how I'm going to be. I don't want to be that way. Um, the most helpful thing that I've discovered is to really look at um, the conditions surrounding the arising of an affliction and... Recognizing which ones promote that affliction and which ones help to decrease that affliction, and then to change those conditions. Um, Because I know when I've when I create all the causes for an affliction, just by telling myself, you know, not to get attached or not to get angry, it doesn't work. I I have to work. You know, you have to look at the surrounding context of when afflictions arise. Mm
0: Yeah, and before we go on to Jay, that's def- that was the first point listed in this uh, little section, that understanding that our afflictions arise from causes and learning how they arise. Right? Like we said, that's the biggest antidote to thinking, this is spontaneous, it's natural, or causeless, causeless so forget it. Right? As long as we have those views, then we're going to keep barking up the wrong tree, right? whereas if we actually look and see, hmm... Yeah, what, what, what's coming from my side, what's coming from the world, you know, those other people and so on. We can figure out how to work with the triggers. Yeah, and then that gives us some, yeah.
2: I'll also add that when I started looking at the conditions, nowhere in those conditions did I find a bad person. Mm. And that was really helpful. Mm. I could say, yes, this is arising and I'm not a bad person because I've, I've looked at all of the conditions, and
0: that's not one of them. Wow, very powerful.
2: So another
10: antidote that's worked very well for me is humor,
0: mm-hmm.
10: laughter, smiling. So some of my afflictions are so old and so familiar <laughs> that when they show up, it's like, oh, yeah, there you are again. And you know just sort of smile with it and don't respond to it and recognize it and let it go. And I think my wife Peggy now thinks I'm a little bit odd because I'll do things like the other night I was washing the dishes, dropped a glass in the sink, and it sort of exploded the way glasses will sometimes when you drop them, and I just spontaneously started laughing, right? And so rather than things that might have made me angry in the past, you know, now it's like, ah, just laugh at it, that's just samsara, so...
11: I think anxiety or fear is the one that I was like, well, what's the worst one for me? And I'd have to cop to that being it. And um, what helps is for me to stop myself from doing because fear comes in and I want to act. I want to do something. I want to fix. I want to do. I want to take control. But this is instead, um, it's a lot like recognition, but it's more about what I call acceptance, which is... Mm -hmm. What can I accept about this situation that is real and true that I don't want to accept? Um, And then the other one that occurred to me was, um, and I was telling in the first part, uh, we, we discussed it between the two of us, but either this is a function of getting older or Buddhism, but I'm not sure which. I now have so many experiences backlogged where I thought something, where I was super angry or super upset or really uptight or something amazing happened where i've had these big highs or lows and they seemed so important and now i've had enough so that i have this backlog i can look back and be like i don't think it was it actually i know wait it's like wait a minute whoa we've seen this feeling before we've seen this situation before and it wasn't earth shattering and and we, i can get through this especially for fear it's the wait a minute it's not going to be, it might not be as bad as you think. And it, so it's a, it's a level of starting to, I think it's actually a level of starting to trust my karma or myself or something like that, that it's it alleviates the anxiety some and helps to calm everything
0: down. Yeah, so this idea of, I like what you said about accepting what is real and true, right? Um, which also ties to what Jay was saying about humor. Yeah, I mean, it's a broken glass in the sink. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not an idiot. Or it's not someone else's fault. It's a broken glass in the sink. We can move on. Yeah, when we cut the exaggeration, that just helps everything to calm down. Yeah, and we start to develop more accurate perspectives on a situation. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So my biggest problem is attachment and. Um, this one seems to be quite immune (laughs) to many of the antidotes, so I have to run through many different ones at any given time, but I think the one that really speaks to my heart is thinking about what's my potential Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking of the qualities of the Buddha and the Arhats and the Bodhisattvas, how much they help people and how uh, much they're able to let go of concern for themselves. And so... I remind myself that I can be like that too, and what a waste if I just settle for the happiness of this life. And what gets in the way of that is precisely just settling for the happiness of this life, thinking it's too hard or you know, it's going to take too long, why don't I just be happy right now? Uh, so really um, selling myself short in that way, um, probably due to laziness or impatience, something like that.
0: And that's a realistic perspective. Isn't that amazing? Like, it takes us so long to, you know, that the low self esteem that is the backdrop of this bad play is actually the wrong view. It's realistic to think I can become a Buddha. It's realistic to think I can develop infinite love and compassion. It's like, wow. And when we tap into that, that helps us to stop wasting our time on the short term, you know. Muffin kind of happiness, <laughs> that level. Yeah.
8: Um, actually, listening to that, I thought of... This is not different than what Kung was saying, but it was like the, the moment in my life when I was really depressed and feeling the victim and said, wait a minute, if I'm going to be a bodhisattva, I can stop being the victim. If I'm the savior, I can't be the victim. That was, I mean, it sounds silly, but it was very profound at the moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, reminding ourselves of our spiritual goals.
8: The other one was, the other one I was thinking of before Robin Wokonga sparked that memory for me was that I was just saying, who is the source of my feelings? Who is, where is this, Where is the locus of this feeling? Who is the source of this? What Whose mind is this feeling in? It's not what I'm observing. It's the meaning that I'm giving to the situation.
0: Right, and that gets us into one of the biggest antidotes, right? To actually start observing the nature of the affliction itself. Right, and the list... Um, his Holiness talks about the value of cultivating intelligence, right? That we not only uh, cultivate accurate perspectives, but we start to investigate who, who is this person who's so angry, upset, victimized, and what is anger really? And then we try and find it. Right? And we, I think when we genuinely try and find it, it becomes a really interesting process. <laughs> it's like, hmm, yeah. Yes, Matt. Venerable
12: Lo well, um, I had two things actually. One is um, what Venerable Kunga um, was saying about um, not wasting our lives on happy, just our potential on happiness of this life. I think about when we're dealing with just the concerns of this life, we might as well be in the animal realm, and. I kinda because we're mammals, we are animals, I kinda see humans as being a common locus between the animal realm and its own realm. And which one do you wanna which one has the most potential and which one do you want to deal with? Um for anger specifically, I found um working with compassion to be the strongest thing. And in general, to um just be familiar with and try to cultivate good qualities because they are often the antidotes to the negative qualities. When I started getting serious about studying Buddhism, I made a list and I put some things on one side of the list and some on the other. They were qualities or emotions and attitudes. And one was things I want to to develop and things I want to work on getting rid of. I mean, as simple as patience and impatience, or anger and love, you know. But when, for anger, seeing, seeing the suffering of somebody else and really that, that helped me more than um, most of the other things I could work with and seeing how my response could make it worse or could make it better. I
0: think what's a great point that you brought up here is that we can in- intentionally cultivate these good qualities too. Like just as the afflictions are not spontaneous and random, likewise for the good qualities, right? Love, compassion are not random accidents that happen out of the blue. It's actually something we can practice and there are all these methods and if we set our mind to it, we can grow them. So, yeah, that's
12: Yeah, practice and uh, cultivate Ekasamya. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: so intentional X. Yes, so venerable, seppled, and venerable. Samkin, is it? No. I'm
5: not sure these have been stated, but when I notice anger arising in my mind, I often ask myself, where does suffering come from? And that mm. really helps to cut things quickly. And when I'm attached to something, I ask myself, where, what is the cause of happiness? It's not in this thing. And it, when I can remember to do that, it's helpful.
6: Mm.
0: Right, coming back to that core teaching, Right, what's the cause, what's the result? Um,
6: listening to the Dharma teachings, and contemplating and meditating helps me.
0: Right, with the cultivation of intelligence for sure. Here, think, meditate. Of
9: course, in that direction. Um, on, on the outside, my um, strongest is um, anger, but behind us is attachment to mm-hmm. self grasping. And um, I like um, my method, um, what I'm practicing since long, and um, uh, is what we had once in class. yeah, I don't know who brought it up. If it was Kri or somebody else, is um, a quote by Krishnaamudi summarizes it: um, "Don't um, strive for self-perfection, but for the perfection of love for the world." You know, like applying the practice, for example, of um, loving-kindness matters or compassion and
0: focus on others um, in that approach. Right, and I think, I don't know if anyone's going to mention that, but that's you're talking about thought transformation as well. Yeah, yeah. From being self-centered, you're turning it and saying, I don't want to just bother with myself. I want to expand that to the world.
10: I had a question as to why anger is the poster child for the afflictions. Because, you know, in listening, you hear 20 angers to every attachment. And um, if ignorance is the root, uh, I'm just puzzled as to why anger, like I say, is the poster child.
0: Or standing up for anger is <laughs> the much maligned. <laughs> no, I'm, yeah, what do people think?
12: I think that we can more easily recognize that anger is a problem, and sometimes we don't recognize um, the attachment because we mistake that zingy excitement for joy. Um, there was there was someone here a cup um, about a week and a half ago who said, "Oh, when I came here, all the the monastics were so excited and so welcoming," and I think she was. Ex- doing the reverse. She was um mistaking joy for excitement. And excitement is and joy are not the same thing. I like what Venerable Um Jigme says about the zingy because it's it's a little buzz, it's this little buzz and and also I think that um anger has attachment as its fruit. Mm-hmm. We are attached to something that we're averse to something because It's how it affects what we're attached to, or if it threatens it.
0: Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think, I mean, in my own journey, it has been so hard to even come to recognize attachment. Um, There was one retreat with Venerable, I can't remember what it was, but I remember her saying, oh, do you really want me to talk about attachment? I think all of you are going to leave the room, (laughs) because it's going to challenge. Very often, we think it's love. Right For so long, I think that was my biggest aha in the early years here. One day I was like, whoa, I thought I loved and cared for all these people, but it was just about me. (laughs) Just, you know, the actual recognition of that and having to make peace with that and see how to genuinely care for people is quite hard. I don't know. So I think, yeah, anger is the clue. Often, I think, it's like, I'm really upset because I'm not getting what I want. Then it's like, what do I want anyway? <laughs> What's behind that? Yeah, and then there's so many layers that we can get under after that. Yeah. So maybe Anger's not the malign poster child. He's um, the friendly signal. <laughs> the, the, the first boop, boop, boop. We're <laughs> like, okay, okay, something's up, something's up. <laughs> Got to dig deep after this. Yeah. Did anything come in from folks online?
4: Shell shared that um, the connection between anger, arrogance, and wrong views continues to be very helpful. My anger arises due to the arrogance of thinking that everything should be my way. It was a great aha moment for me, um, recognizing the even more subtle anger. And then uh, Tracy shared, anger can cause so much regret and is so painful for ourselves and others as well. And someone else affirms uh, that uh, anger causes so much harm to others.
0: I think we pretty much hit them out on them all so I'm, let me just quickly run through that list from this section and we can see what, might, what else we can add and I'm sure there's more too yep. so His Holiness begins with talking about how it's helpful to know the causes of the afflictions and to observe how they arise right? just remembering that they're not spontaneous and they're not givens yeah. we don't have to live life with this perpetual state of fear or sadness there are ways to change. Um, and then what Tanya mentioned, you, we can learn to observe and detect them when they're small and quickly apply the antidotes. And many people talked about how we can deliberately cultivate accurate perspectives and make them habitual right, instead of being habituated to the opposite. Um, he also mentioned how the body is one of our best clues. Right, Once we're aware of changes in our breathing and our heart rate and our temperature and our muscle tension, We know something's come up in the mind, and then what Venerable Jigme mentioned—observing the mood or the texture of our mind, right? A zingy feeling, or the starting to ruminate about one object. Like, hmm, okay, that's a clue. Um, What we didn't mention, but I think we're already all doing, is to meditate regularly, right? Because that's basically what helps us become more aware of our thoughts and emotions, and that's the whole process of habituating ourselves to um, constructive emotions is through meditation. We talked a bit about developing intelligence, which is the ability to discriminate or analyze the characteristics of an object. So many of us talked about just learning to recognize what it is that's coming up in the mind or recognizing the nature of what we're obsessing about (laughs) or frustrated with. Um, in her teaching, Venerable spent more time on this, really talking about um, what's uh, called corrupted intelligence, right? when we have wrong views and how through the seven cognizers uh, we can transform a wrong view into a correct view. Yeah. Um, some of us talk too about being aware of mental processes that lie behind emotions. Yeah. Was it, I can't remember who, but yeah. But talking about how, yeah, the interpretation comes from us. Right, I'm interpreting something, I'm telling a story, this is not actually, that's not actually what's happening. Right? And then, as Venerable Jumbo pointed out, then we can actually transform our thoughts. Right? I can actually shift the focus onto others instead of running the same old script. Uh, what we didn't mention was um, we can purify and accumulate merit. Right? And I think Venerable often points that out, if we're stuck... With a particular affliction, or it seems like we've tried all kinds of antidotes and it's just not going away, then purify. You know, do some kind of practice. Um, for me, I do a lot of mantra when my mind's just stuck. And I never really thought about how it works, but I think it helps break the rumination. You know, it's just totally not a logical thing, right? It's a set of sounds that don't have some kind of meaning but they resonate with positive qualities, apparently. <laughs> so it just helps me cut the rumination. I just switch and do a lot of mantra, and I find it helps. Yeah, my mind just shifts the object and it calms down. And hopefully there's some merit, <laughs> yeah, which makes the mind move in the other direction. Yeah. So many of us talked about consciously directing our thoughts in a positive way. Yeah, as Venerable Lo Xiang pointed out, we actively think about the benefits of a good quality or a positive state of mind. We inspire ourselves to work with it. And then we meditate, and we repeat. As Tanya pointed out, it's a bit like math, almost, or mechanical. Repeat the steps. Rinse, repeat, 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 repeat. And all of us here are testament to the fact that it works. right? I mean, if not, we would not still be here. Yeah, We'd be out drinking, I guess, or doing something else, eating donuts. (laughs) hmm, <laughs> donuts, yeah, sorry, <laughs> no, wait, <laughs> come back to class, <laughs> um, no, I meant donuts,
9: <laughs>
0: do not send donuts, I did not mean donuts. <laughs> um, uh, yeah yeah yeah, no no (laughs) coming back to number 11 um um his holiness pointed out too that we can use gatas to transform our ordinary activities into the path to awakening so that's a very skillful way where we start small right we use a little gata as you've seen posted all over the abbey on the mirrors just little tips like oh when i'm doing this think about this yeah as Venerable Jampa has uh, pointed out, I think it was in the teaching she gave too. Yeah, right. So you're going up the hill, and you think, "May I lead all beings up the hill, up to awakening? Right? May I go into the hell realms to uh, liberate them, and so on." Um, and two, we talked about generating the opposite state of mind to counteract the affliction. Right. So we can go through those lists for ourselves as well. Right. There's a clear opposite state of mind to every affliction. Um, and we didn't bring up this one. Use your imagination. So in the book, uh, it was mentioning how you can imagine the world is filled with bones as a way to, um, you know, reduce our attachment to samsara. Um, or I think Venerable is very creative at this one. I really like her. Uh, the one about being queen for a day. <laughs> right? Imagine yourself getting every single thing you actually want. Right, and go for it. Right, you're queen of the day. You get the car. You get the house or whatever it is. And then what? <laughs> right, but, you know, just go there, yeah? Or you, you actually get every single thing you want. And then what? <laughs> yeah, or just visualizing offering everything to the three jewels right, that we enjoy. That's our imagination put to very good use. Um, and he talks about, too, how we eventually learn to be a doctor to our own minds. So we learn, you know, what works when. Like Venerable Jigme said, when she's attached, it does not work to be like, you must separate from the object. You are going to deny yourself. If you know that doesn't work, don't do it. Yeah, exactly. So the example he brought up in the text was how, you know, when you're arrogant or there's a lot of um, excitement in the mind, then you do meditations to reduce that, right? Whether it's on impermanence or the foulness of um, samsara and so on. But if your mind is depressed, that is not the time to be doing those meditations. <laughs> it's just going to make you feel worse, right? So it's really um, tricky, right, to learn to recognize that. But over time, we learn how to work with these different states, yeah. especially in retreat, I think. Yeah. So your mind gets depressed, and you think about you know, precious human rebirth, um, all the good qualities that you aspire for, <laughs> your own potential. Right? That's the time to switch, yeah. But of course, then you don't do that when you're arrogant, right? Like, I'm so awesome, and (laughs) and so on. (laughs) So just learning how to bring ourselves to that middle. So over time, we get skilled with a two-pronged approach, right? We manage the unwholesome emotions, and we learn to be familiar with the wholesome emotions. And, uh, yeah, and as Venerable Seppel, we come back, right, to once we think about the benefits of the wholesome emotions, that just inspires us to move in that direction. I was trying to find this quote, and I think it's from one of Jeffrey Hopkins' books, about how, you know, when we... Most Buddhist practice just starts with thinking about the benefits of something or the disadvantages of something, and how if we sit and think deeply about the benefits of a wholesome state of mind, everything just naturally moves in that direction. You don't have to beat yourself up or or like push. It's like, oh, yeah, I do want to cultivate that. And things just fall into place. So, just spending a lot of time actually on the benefits of something you want to cultivate is a very good use of time. And it's better than beating yourself up, I can tell you that. (laughs) Don't go there. (laughs) Okay, so before we close, anything to add?
4: And someone asked, uh, what is the antidote for restlessness?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Venerable Tarpa pointed, yeah, breathing meditation helps, especially if you're thinking about the restlessness in the context of the five hindrances Yeah, to concentration. That's where we talk about restlessness and regret. Um, so, you know, all these methods help investigate the cause of the restlessness. Is it attachment? Like, I can't stand to sit here anymore. I got to get up and eat a donut, (laughs) or is it more, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) I'm not hungry, I don't actually eat donuts, (laughs) or is it more, wow, I really don't want to think about this horrible thing I did, I feel so poorly about myself, I need to get out of this seat, yeah, so then you know, right, Hmm. I need to do some purification, yeah, so sit and investigate, what's behind the restlessness, who's restless anyway, (laughs) how's it coming up? And yeah, wh- where does it come from? And then I think once you have a clearer sense of that, you'll know which of the antidotes to apply. Yeah.
5: I think also with most of these, if, we, um, if we're stuck on one thing, if we consciously open up our perspective, so if I feel restless, then what would contentment feel like? And how could I get a big mind that would have some contentment?
10: Mm-hmm.
5: So again, just opening the view, I think.
0: Yeah, I loved how in the definition it said affliction is a state of mind that's narrow. Right, so naturally, once we go to big view, it's got to disperse. Yeah, Venerable Tarpa.
6: I think another way that opens up the view is um, something I read in a book, but I thought was very helpful. Um, they were saying that Westerners have sometimes are slower to progress, and the re- one of the reasons was is that they get kind of we get kind of caught up in the dramas rather than stepping back and seeing what the processes of the mind and that's where we can work with things better you know to see so for what we what, what we already do in that way i think is we are we have trained ourselves pretty well here to see what are our our, our habitual patterns and that habitual patterns are processes of the mind and once you can step away from the content And just see, like, this is, for me, works really well with doubt. I used to just be caught in it, and I didn't know what it was. But I realized that what my mind was doing was the same, no matter what the content was. (laughs) The mind was the actual same. And once I recognized that, I realized, well, the problem isn't, I'm not going to fix this by looking at the content. I'm going to fix this by recognizing this is what doubt is like in the mind. And I already had learned hard way that it never got me anywhere so now when I say it's doubt I can actually drop it because I know it's a dead end but you have to know it's a dead end before you can drop things
0: <laughs> and like you said it's coming to it through meditation too right knowing okay there's a mind and it has processes <gasps> and what are they yeah so we are way over time I'm sorry but I'd like to read you a two-page thing from Venable's website that I find I, I always find very helpful, um, and I hope it will keep everyone going in this uh, very long process of working with afflictions. And it comes from a talk called uh, A Monastic's Mind. So I'm guessing most people will not read this uh, transcript, so that's why it's worth reading as well. But anyway, if you Google A Monastic's Mind on her website, you'll find it. So she has this section here called Self-Acceptance and Compassion for Ourselves. And she says... In the process of working with our mind, it's important to give ourselves some space and not expect ourselves to be perfect, especially if you know, we're a monastic. After we ordain, or really any Buddhist practitioner, you know, once you start on the path, um, it's easy to think, I should act like Rinpoche, yeah, your teacher. <laughs> and she says, especially if you have a teacher like Lama Zopa Rinpoche who doesn't sleep. <laughs> you might compare yourselves to him and think there's something wrong with you because you have to sleep. <laughs> and you think, I should stop sleeping and practice all night. If only I had more compassion, I could do this. We become judgmental with ourselves. Look how selfish I am. What a disaster I am. I can't practice. Everyone else practices so well. I am such a mess. We become very self-critical and down on ourselves. Being like this is a total waste of time. It's completely unrealistic and has no benefit at all. Nothing positive comes from beating up on ourselves. Absolutely none. So Venerable says, I spent a long time being very judgmental of myself, thinking that this was good and right. I can tell you from my experience that nothing useful comes from it. (laughs) So what is a realistic attitude? We have to notice our defects. We notice our weak areas and faults and have some acceptance of ourselves. Accepting ourselves doesn't mean we're not going to try to change. We recognize a certain trait as disadvantages, a negative quality that we have to work on. But at the same time, we have some gentleness and compassion for ourselves. Yes, I have this negative trait. Here it is. It's not going to disappear completely in the next 10 minutes, or even in the next year. I'm going to have to work with this for a while. I accept this, and I know that I can and will do it. Thus, we have some basic self-acceptance instead of expecting ourselves to be some kind of perfect human being. And when we have that basic self-acceptance, we can start applying the antidotes to our faults and change our lives. We have the self-confidence that says, we can do this. When we lack that self-acceptance and instead beat up on ourselves, saying, I'm not good because I can't do this, that person is better than me, I'm such a wreck, Uh, we then push ourselves, thinking, I've got to be perfect, and get tight inside. This is not a useful strategy for self-transformation. Self-acceptance, on the other hand, has a quality I call transparency. We're not afraid of our faults. We can talk about our weak points without feeling ashamed or mortified. Our mind is compassionate with ourselves. I have this fault. The people around me know I have it. It's not a big secret. This transparency enables us to be more open about our faults. We can talk about them without concealing them and without feeling humiliated when we do so. Trying to cover up our faults is useless. When we live with others, we know each other's faults very well. We all have 84,000 disturbing attitudes and negative emotions. Others know it, so we might as well admit it. It's no big deal. We don't have to pretend that we only have (laughs) 83,999. In admitting our faults to ourselves and others, we also realize that we're all in the same boat. We can't feel sorry for ourselves because we are more deluded than anyone else. We don't have a greater or lesser number of disturbing attitudes and negative emotions than other sentient beings. So she concludes saying it's very important that we talk and be open with each other. And I think that's exactly what we've done here. As Dharma friends, we share and we support each other. And um, yeah, we share the advice that we've learned. And that's how we keep going on this path, by being very kind to ourselves for a start. Recognizing what we are, where we are, and connecting with each other and helping each other to grow. So thank you all for participating and sharing. And so let's uh, take a moment just to rejoice and dedicate the merit. Let's just rejoice that we were able to share with such uh, kindness and humility and transparency with each other, knowing that all of us go through the same difficulties and problems. And the important thing is practicing the antidotes and encouraging each other to keep going. So we can imagine all the positive energy we've created as brilliant light at our hearts that we send out into the entire universe. Especially to beings that have a completely different view of afflictions. Who might think that they are inherent in the mind. Who might have no tools to work with them. May they someday come into connection with the Dharma so they can be freed of wrong views and progress on the path to full awakening.